Today I had the pleasure of having a conversation with Gustav Soderstrom, Spotify's Chief Research and Development Officer. He oversees the product design, data, and engineering teams at Spotify and is also responsible for Spotify's product strategy. Gustav is also an entrepreneur and an investor who has founded and sold startups into the technology space, including 13th Lab, which is a computer vision startup that he co-founded, which was acquired by Facebook's Oculus in 2014. He've co-founded and served as chief executive officer of messaging startup Kennetworks, which was acquired by Yahoo. Gustav holds a Master's of Science in Electrical Engineering from KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden and was voted the KTH Alumni of the Year in 2019. Gustav is also a podcast host himself and recently launched a podcast miniseries, Spotify, A Product Story, which offers a glimpse into the decisions that have guided Spotify's product evolution. Uh, We had a far-ranging conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming, Gustav. We had a great pre-conversation, which got me especially excited about talking about a range of things with you. Um, Of course, most people that are listening know you um, as, you know, a leader at, at Spotify. So... I mean, this, you know, Spotify is a very special thing to a lot of people because music is a, a huge thing in people's lives. Yeah. Can you speak a little to how you think that humans are shaped by choices that Spotify makes and how Spotify is shaped by humans? That reaction, that interaction of how those two things happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very fortunate place to get to work at and a fortunate space to be in both uh, Spotify specifically, but music in generally. I think there are a few spaces that are like almost entirely good, so to speak, in terms of the, of the, the object that you work with. Um, so it's, it's a very exciting and fun space to be in. It's something that brings joy to so many people. And when we think about music, it's so, I would say there are so many different modes of listening music is so much to people it is everything from the thing that they that they pay full attention to it is the thing that leads their life uh, you know you, you go and you listen to something intently all the way to something that accompanies something else that you do all the way to almost pure use case you, you just want to soundtrack something else that you do right and you know whether it's shopping or elevator music so music is a very wide range of things and it covers a wide range of emotion and i would say from a product person point of view a wide range of of use cases and so i think one of the interesting things that happened with music when it went from being uh, downloaded where you sort of paid per track to being a flat fee whether whether you actually use the free tier that is based on advertising so you paid nothing or you paid a flat fee was that i would say in in financial speak the marginal cost to listen to one more track fell to zero. It used to be about 99 cents to listen to another track. That seemed like a small fee, right, in the iTunes era, 99 cents. But if you think about it, once you bring that down to zero, things start changing. So we saw some interesting things happening. For example, people started to soundtrack their sleep, which you would not really do at 99 cents per three minutes, but you would at, a, at a zero in marginal cost. 
So all these other use cases popped up once the catalog became sort of a fixed price. And that was that was really magical for me to see. And you know, I'm very interested obviously in machine learning and AI. And so to have to be able to play anything without a marginal cost or at a fixed price for the entire experience means that you could simply get much more value out of applying something like uh, machine learning to it. And so we started seeing all these different uses of music pop up once everyone sort of had all the music in the world at a fixed cost. So that's something that I think was unique about the sort of streaming and streaming versus download era and, and this ability of everyone having all the music ever made. That's really inspiring to me. And, and we're still like exploring those situations and use cases for music out of this catalog of, you know, many, many tens of millions of objects. Well, when most of us think about different types of uh, AI and different types of neural nets, we think that as you get samples over time and the more data, the the stronger the AI becomes, uh, the more it learns. Can you talk about a little bit about early days of Spotify and you know recommendations, or whether people were more involved at that point, and how things have evolved, and what have, what have you noticed about choices and human behavior? Yeah, absolutely. So Spotify started in um, I think it was founded in two thousand six, and it really launched about two thousand eight. So in that era, m- much of the consumer software that was launched was launched on the same principle: you kind of bring access to a large catalog of something, right? In Spotify case, it was the catalog of music. In you know the social networks case, it was the catalog of friends. And then you ask the user to organize this. In Spotify case, create your playlist yourself. In Facebook's case, start following people and create a graph yourself. But the the the, the modus operandi was really bring access to something and ask the users to organize it. So Spotify started like that. It was really a search bar that was quite powerful because it had all the music ever made. And then it was this uh, high-level programming language called playlisting, where you could sort of build your own musical program without having to really know how to code. And so that turns out there are lots of people in the world who are very talented at music. They know a lot of the catalog, and they understand how they would soundtrack their lives. So we kind of, I think of it as we gave them this tool to soundtrack their own lives. So in a sense, perfect personalization, because you personalize it for you. So it's by definition perfect but also a lot of work for you as a user because you had to do the entire personalization yourself. We just didn't help at all, right? It was just a search bar plus this programming tool. And then a few things happened that were interesting and they happened in parallel. One was that, and this was not anticipated by us, it was luck. And and I think you know, in, in general in life, like people just under, underestimate how much is luck and how little is skill. You just have to have to realize that you things happen and, and you either happen to be there or not. So we lucked out. And it turned out that when millions of people playlisted for themselves and soundtracked their lives, they were also organizing the world's music catalog along all of these dimensions, right? So if they soundtracked, you know, their dinner with friends or their run, they were creating what you could think of later as training examples for what a good running session should look like or what a good dinner um, with friends should look like. And so we had some people who uh, came from the Royal Institute of Technology who were very interested in machine learning very early. This was already 2007, so before the whole deep learning revolution, and sp- especially a person named Eric Bernardson who, who was very interested in collaborative filtering. And he's, he, before, before I or anyone else saw it at all, 
he realized that we have this treasure trove here where people group tracks into playlists and sort of give them names. You know, th that looks like a collaborative filtering problem. It's like which tracks um, occur together in the same playlists more often. So he started doing collaborative filtering on this and creating embeddings of which tracks tend to appear together in playlists. So we started getting similarity data or embeddings for all of these tracks. And that's really how we came into machine learning. And it really happened bottoms up from the engineering side, not top down actually by vision. In fact, if I was going to be honest, we did not really see the machine learning revolution until much later, even though we were funnily enough, quite good at it internally. We were quite early technically, but on the vision side, we didn't see it as very strategic or, or important for a long while. And so, so that happened. We actually were early in machine learning despite ourselves, despite the, the senior leadership of the company uh, because there were engineers who were really interested in this and did some really exciting, exciting uh, work with distributed data systems and so forth. At the same time, we also saw that we started sort of... Uh, tapping out on the type of users that wanted to use Spotify. So it turns out there were only so many people in the world who were really good at music, who knew the entire back catalog, who kept track of all the new releases and wanted to take the time to playlist. So we had reached a certain, the, the traditional sort of, of uh, you know, uh, gap that you talk about in, in innovation from the early adopters to the next. Uh, so, so we had sort of uh, reached that gap. And, um, we found these companies, this company called uh, Tunigo, actually a Swedish company, who was playlisting on the Spotify. They were creating playlists on Spotify, but it was a third-party company. They were just using us as a platform. And they, because of this flat rate access to music, they had started playlisting in a new way. They started playlisting along these use cases, like uh, focus music, uh, dinner with friends, workout music, much more use case focused rather than the traditional genre focus of hip-hop, trip-hop, trip-hop, drum and bass, and so forth. And we could actually see in our metrics that they were onto something. They were simplifying music for people who wanted to do something with the music, but they just didn't have the time or didn't know about all the genres and bands and all this traditional language around music. So uh, so we actually acquired that company, Tunigo, and, they, and with that, a really strong editorial team so now inside Spotify, we had like two camps, and it really was two camps. It was a an editorial camp who were really good at understanding human emotions because they were humans, right? <laughs> there was a big team of people who understood hip-hop, who understood R&B, who understood people and culture. So they were very, they had a very cute sense of what people wanted to do, which use cases were important, right? So they could playlist based on use cases. And then we had this machine learning effort who could look at all the data and understand like which, if we have a song, which other song goes well to this from the similarity data. But they were literally two camps kind of fighting each other. It's, you know, is the are the machines going to replace the humans? But then the humans said like, look, this machine understands nothing. It would play like a hip hop track right af after like a heavy metal track. Like it's not very smart. There was this traditional discussion. And uh, sort of fast forwarding a long story, eventually we found a way to join these two what some people refer to as human in the loop, where, where we really leverage the fact that humans are very well at understanding the high-level use case, cultural events, and so forth, and they create the vehicle or the use case. But it is actually the machine that programs it and personalizes it to you. So you get the benefits of like human intelligence on the high level, 
but like machine scalability in terms of reaching, you know, 350 million people. So that's uh, the long story in the short version. No, no, it's it, it brought up so many things that I hadn't thought of. It, it, I I think of it now as there is sort of the DJ embedded in it, and we're not all uh, DJs, and we're also whether it's live DJs or whether it was traditional radio, radio DJs, and it leaves that kind of interesting discovery had when when I was young of you're listening to the radio, you kind of hope a certain song will come on, you know, because it touches you. But the, the beauty is you will also discover other things and you kind of wait in anticipation of what that is. So a, a playlist in some way and this mix of it being chosen by what you really care about, not what necessarily the entire world cares about. And at the same time, um, new, new uh, discoveries. I hadn't thought of that distinction. And I also think one thing that is stressful in my life, but it may be specific to me, but I, uh, I kind of imagine other people have this, is that we go to many platforms that do other types of media and it's it's overwhelming the amount of choices we have in our lives. So I end up, as a, as a huge cinephile, I end up watching less movies, even though more are available to me. Exactly. And I'm, I'm wondering if this sort of, sort of mixture of or human and um, algorithmic uh, collaboration takes that a bit away from me in the discovery process. So I know I'll always turn on Spotify at night, even without making a lot of decisions. Does that make sense at all? I mean, have you heard that before? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we all feel that because of, of technology lowering the, the bars to creation, which I think is fantastic, in, in every category, whether music, audio, video, number of creators are exploding, so amount of content is exploding. And so the paradox of choice will only increase, right? That's that's a, that's a, that's clear. And, and so that means that the value of something like like machine learning and AI to help you in that paradox probably also increases. So I think in general this goes for society. And you know there there are some uh, there are some things that I think are are potentially you know a bit sad about this. In that I think at least a lot of people of my generation they kind of reminisce about the fact that you had more shared culture. Now I come from Sweden, which is a form, former socialist country. And when I grew up, we had two TV channels, literally TV1 and TV2. And so when when uh, the Swedish TV decided to buy the rights to Shogun, like everyone, oh, yeah. everyone in Sweden had yeah. seen Shogun. So, I mean, you had something to talk about with everyone. And, and, in, and, you know, there's some benefits to that. It creates shared culture. You know, these days, genres are much smaller. So there isn't, there probably isn't as much, well, people argue about this. You still have... House of Cards and Game of Thrones. So, so it's it's both that the hits keep getting bigger, but it's also much more niche. So there's this question if, if it if if all this amount of content and personalization would put you in what some people call your filter bubble. Um, that you know, in music, people don't think it's bad. They want their own music, but uh, you know, th there are two sides to this argument. I think it's really important to have shared culture in order to to feel that you belong to the same reality. Yet it's very clear that people want things that they like, and that also seems to be a very good thing. So this is what I think we can balance with with um, with these type of machine learning systems that have both humans and 
and uh, machines in them. Um, I think there, you can take the approach that it, like, um, it's just, you know, people do things, you look at patterns in that data and you kind of repeat it, but you have no opinion of it. You just reinforce what is happening, right? And that seems very randomized that the world goes where it goes. There is the other view where you think you have some some opinions or you, you try to steer it, which you have to be careful about because it can get paternalistic and, and, and uh, you can go into like directing things. But I think a good example is um, what, what, what humans are good at, for example, is we have this, this beautiful example that I've, I've talked about um, in other places, but we had this, we have this really popular um, moment where people love to sing music in the car when they ride to work or something. It's this private space where people can, who like to sing, but don't feel comfortable singing in public can scream their lungs out, right? And so an editor comes up with this concept, which is like, we should have a product, a playlist called Songs to Sing in the Car. That seems to be a big use case. And first of all, like you could do a lot of machine learning before, the, before a machine said, there should be a playlist named Songs to Sing in the Cards. You have to abstract a lot of levels up to there. So I think I think humans are fantastic at that. But then the second problem was, what are songs to sing in the car? Like if you were going to write a uh, heuristic to describe that, maybe you would say like, I think it's uh, maybe a bit of movie music. Maybe it's overrepresents the eighties. You would you would write lots and lots of long, long, long rules, but it's really hard to pin down for a, for a machine, right? Whereas. Uh, that's where machine learning is fantastic. So what the editors, so, so what the humans did is they, our editors, they basically create a large pool of tracks that they know culturally, this is what people mean with songs to sing in the car, right? And then, then you can let machine learning look at that and say like, oh, that's actually what songs to sing in the cars look like statistically. They can look at the rest of the catalog and, and try to fill this. So I think we should build machine learning systems where you have humans who can actually take a left or right and, and kind of steer the system rather than just backing out and saying the system is going to do whatever it wants because people do whatever they want, right? And so that's kind of what I believe in. That's a long-winded answer. Well, the, this song to sing in a car is an interesting example that I wouldn't have thought would be have anything to do with uh, playlisting or or recommendation algorithm only because in order to sing a song you have to know the song <laughs> you know so exactly there, 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 there is this you, know, you have to playlist for something oh the, these are songs the person knows you're not going to generally people don't scat and things you know along exactly with it. or maybe they do i it's it's that's a really interesting example I think another thing about my generation, it might be your generation as well, is that we either had CDs, cassettes, or records, and it, and that there's a there there was a beauty not just about buying them, and I, by the way, I still listen to records uh, as well as Spotify. It's just for for different experiences and times. But there is something to the start to finish uh, rather than the track-oriented way of listening to music. It's also sort of true with classical music in some ways and and jazz for sure, which is what I, you know, I've been very interested in play, play jazz. Um, the, that, that type of experience uh, 
does that go away with this, uh, you know, with a kind of DJ style playlisting recommendation? Uh, or is, is that something that Spotify tried to create? It's a, it's a really good question. So, I mean, what is, what, what is hard to untangle here is what was the format that forced away consumption and what was the, what was culture? So it used to be that music came to you sort of as boxed software, especially if you talk MP3s, it was actually bits on there. And, um, the box that you got was an album, right? And and this was for initially for distribution reasons. You know, the, the, the original wax discs could only contain a certain amount of minutes per track, per side. So because you were going to send this piece of plastic anyway, let's put another few songs in there. And so the entire album format is actually based on physical constraints initially that survived for a long time. But it turned into a storytelling format where artists try to tell a story with several songs, right? And I think this is true in general. Like you first put the constraints and then people oh. start, com, com, you know, creating. It's like Twitter, people create in a certain way with that constraint. If you have a blog, people create in another way. So I think this album was a constraint, physical constraint because of plastic discs initially. And it caught on and that's how people created. And it's a great way of storytelling. Um, and and this is obviously the reason why we still support albums and and if you would look at their user data you will see distinct types of people you will see the artists and the album people in there who like to listen to albums because it's a story being told but you will also see that there is a lot of playlisting once that physical constraint disappeared which was didn't have anything to do with spotify it was when the mp3 came along and you could download a single file instead of a full album from you know pirate bay or something that's really when the album got unbundled and people started picking the best of each album instead and so, I mean, my hunch is uh, people are going to have favorites from an album. And if they have uh, a uh, fixed amount of time, they're going to pick their favorites. To su- if you think of it from their point of view, they're trying to soundtrack their life, you know, whatever they're doing. And they're going to pick the best from the full catalog. But there's another moment where it's not about you. It's actually about the artist. You're trying to understand the story that they're telling. And then they go into album listening mode. So both still exists, but obviously the, the playlist is, is massive and huge. And that is the biggest mode of, of consumption. But it is not at all the case that, you know, album listening has disappeared or it doesn't exist anymore. It's, I don't know, maybe it's even as big as it ever was. It's just that music got much bigger. Yeah, I, I, I wonder about that, that maybe music has become even a larger part of our lives and, and in different formats. This is really interesting when you talk about constraints. I mean, I'm kind of a, you know, a, a, I, I romanticize some, some types of uh, earlier formats. I mean, I, lo- I, I go to uh, Thomas Edison's labs in New Jersey, which isn't far from here, and you see the, the very first phonographs. Yeah. And the constraints and limitations of those are enormous. But in a way, I've always thought of those as a teaser to go to a concert. So, you know, you have an opera singer at the time would come and sing and then, you know, tickets to the Metropolitan Opera, which was very early in its days, was kind of launched by it. And we see now, I'd say now pre-COVID, but probably, and that's interesting to see, we'll maybe discuss what has happened and how things have changed during a time of more isolation, but you see a lot of live performances. You know, this is, we spend a lot of our time 
discovering everything and going to live performances that you wouldn't necessarily gone to before. And I'm wondering if even though we see Spotify is having everything, which it does, and I had every type of music and represents almost everybody. The discovery aspect is still a kind of teaser the way a limitation on an album would be. Yeah, I, I think you're right in general. I think if, if you zoom out, there's a really interesting case that, um, I mean, the, the recorded wax disc that, that only could contain three and a half, four minutes, that wasn't, that wasn't how music started. It used to be live. You had concerts. So you could really think of like, and I know you're, you're big on classical music. It's usually much longer than three and a half minutes, right? Jazz so, too. Jazz yeah, too, exactly. Right. And so one way to look at it is that the, if music had had a chance to, to develop organically, it wouldn't have happened to be three and a half minutes on average. It would be much, it would be much longer. This was a constraint of the first disc. Then that, that's how you got distributions. You started creating into it, radio perpetuated it, and so forth. But then somewhere around the MP3, that physical constraint disappeared. And you can see inklings of it changing. You could see that uh, electronic dance music that sort of happened after this disappeared. It tended to be longer than three minutes. It tended to to ignore this artificial sort of constraint, creational constraint a little bit. But I'm still surprised that more hasn't happened to to your point with, with the format itself because most of those constraints are gone, but they still remain culturally. Right, exactly. And that... I hadn't thought about it that way. Have 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 tracks increased, or do they still remain sort of a teaser to be able to go and experience the music in a live format? And it seems to be, but it's anecdotal to me. You may have data on this that that it still does remain in that way. And maybe you, maybe the discovery aspect of Spotify actually increases the exposure to even live music in ways that it had before. You can see some things that happen, which is. Uh people tend to optimize. I mean, it, it is, so if we back out, I, I think I like to think of um, music creation in relation to software development, actually. So if you think of them as tool chains, you could think of what software developers have when they create something. And you could think of what a musician have, and you could look at the diff between the two. So if you would make the analogy that a software, dev- a software developer, they, they develop in some sort of language, right? So the equivalent for a, for a musician would be you have samples and, and uh, you have instruments and, and you have uh, beats and, and so forth, right? And then you have some, some sort of IDE, interactive development environment, which is in music's language called a DAW, digital audio workstation, like Ableton or something, where you work in stems. And then... That, thus far, it's quite similar. That you have the music in source code. You can change it around and play with it. What happens in music then is you quote-unquote compile this into an executable like a .mp3 because the mp3 runtime is the only runtime that was truly had a lot of distribution. So if you want to get distribution for the software you had developed as a musician, you had to compile it into, into this mp3 format, right? That, because that's the runtime that was installed. And this used to be the same for software developer. You compile it into an executable because that that was the the runtime that was distributed. But if you look at what happened to software development, you know, it's moved on from shipped boxed software where you just just compile and fire and forget. Now a software developer developer wouldn't dream of this. They would would keep their source code. They would A-B test it. 
They would get feedback from the audience. They would iterate. They would, in fact, they have something like GitHub where they can go in and like freely borrow and test and so forth. And there is no good reason why this wouldn't be true for music anymore because all the technical constraints are gone. You don't have to compile into an MP3 anymore. So I, I just have this feeling that music is so, so, so early in the creative phase versus other mediums, right? And it's it's because of it's because of how the industry works. You still have to quote unquote compile to this intermediate format to get just distribution to all these streaming services. But there's no good reason why music is at the end of the line creatively, and it, like it will never change again. Yeah, that's amazing that you talk about it being early. I mean, it's it's kind of the oldest form of human expression. <laughs> exactly. Or, you know, computer develop, developing is unbelievably new as far as what humans do. I, I, I like this revisiting of it. Can you speak a little to your own preferences? How have you, has this experience changed the way things that you listen to? Uh, well, I think most of this, hasn't happened yet because m- music isn't full stack, right? It, it's still like there are creation tools where you have the, the thing in source code, you can work with it, but then you have to kind of decide and ship it to a label. It gets ingested in the streaming services. People listen to it. A few months later, you get some sort of stream count. That's that's the feedback loop. That's not how other media works. If, if you develop a video on YouTube or something, you're very active with your audience. You work on daily iterations, you test things and so forth, right? So largely this hasn't happened yet. But even on this very slow feedback loop where it may take you months before you understand how your creation actually performed, you still see that the format changes. So actually, we can see that on average, people move the chorus slightly slightly forward in the songs. Maybe because of, of uh, well, recommendation algorithms like us, maybe because of services like TikTok, etc., where they want to get to the chorus quicker to keep people's attention. So th- you, don't want, right, you, don't want, you don't want them to skip the song and go to the next one. So, so, you know, long intros are less common now. You have shorter intros and get more straight to the point, right? So you can see that creators always adopt based on feedback. It just happens very, very slowly. And, and I would say music is the format where this feedback loop is the slowest. It barely exists. It can take literally months before a creator understands how something actually did, which is not true for another medium. So, so I would say that I don't know how it, how, will, how it will affect the world because it doesn't really exist yet, but I'm absolutely certain that this is not the end of history. It seems super weird that we would just live with this old wax constraint forevermore. That seems unlikely to me. How, how interested are you in neuroscience? I am... Very interested, but very much an amateur. I am interested in, like many other people, in uh, what the point is of of us being here. I'm interested in intelligence. I'm interested in, you know, like many people, what, what, what consciousness is, why, why it feels like something to exist. This is my, ex- and, you know, Spotify is my excuse to actually get to work with machine learning at some large scale. <laughs> Do, yeah. Did, does anybody? Well, we can talk about machine learning for sure. I'm just curious if, and do you know of any studies that have been done on uh, any way that you know whether it's you know cortical changes in an fMRI or you know different recruiting or anything has has occurred uh, due to or with people that listen to you know curated music versus uh, uncurated music or 
this this idea of you know courses coming first and attention is, is there been any, have there been any studies done on it that you're aware of? Yes, um, I mean that there have been a lot of studies around using music for using music for therapy of different conditions, um, and, and I think people have an instinct for this for for a long time. And there are certainly music uh, studies where you can see that music affects your 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 uh, mental state and your brain waves and so forth. Um, I've also seen studies where people look at do proper A/B tests of reading comprehension to different types of music, including, for example, white noise um, that have proven better than better than um, average or better than random um, ability to focus. So it's clear that music affects your mind and is a quite effective way of affecting your 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 uh, your mental state and your electrochemistry, if you want to be scientific of it. And, and I find that exciting. I, I think of it almost as, I think of it almost, I think of language as a higher order language, like objective um, programming or something. And then I think of, of music as almost like, I don't know, machine code, maybe a, maybe assembly and maybe actually binary code where, where you can, you can be, you can be more effective in, in, uh, uh, in changing uh, mental state, you can you can. So, for example, if if I was going to try to get you to feel melancholy, maybe I have to spend I don't know 150 words or something to to get your brain into that state, electrochemical state of feeling melancholy. But it could probably do it in like 15 seconds with music. It's so direct. It's like it's like source code or, or machine code or something. Well. I'm wondering, you know, I, I know you have a lot of experience, obviously, with different types of machine learning. Uh, I I wonder how much we take into account this subconscious effect when we're creating neural nets. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, this idea that something, that there's something deliberate about inputs into a neural net. Um, how do we, how do we account for these um, sort of rapid subconscious emotional effects when writing, uh, and this is not Spotify specific. So, so that you can you can either be on your Spotify mind or not for this. I'm just curious about your opinion and whether that is a, a limitation right now in understanding consciousness uh, with machine learning, or if, if it's heading in the right direction, or not even necessarily right, but you know, no value judgment. But is it heading in that direction at all? How do you mean with with the the types of the fidelity of the inputs we have, or or in what sense? Well, uh, I think that if you're trying to solve a problem, you know, if if you're if you're if you're setting some type of optimization function in a in a neural net, how much do you take into account the you know the the rapid emotional state versus those more obvious inputs to learn from? Yeah, so I mean, if I take it from a Spotify perspective, we have very blunt, low fidelity feedback loops, which is basically a click stream. Did you listen or did you skip the song, right? And 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 there's there's some other data on uh, if you if you go and search for something or maybe you're driving, so you can understand. But it's actually very very it's very far removed from what is actually happening in your brain, right? And uh, it would obviously I, I think one of the interesting promises of the future is that brain imaging is is improving quite rapidly non-invasive brain imaging 
So you could imagine doing uh, control tests with different types of music in in a um, in a um, anonymized setting where you get much higher fidelity data. It's almost like, you know, you have quantitative research, which is you do an A-B test on millions of people. And you have qualitative, where you enter, interview people and you say like, well, you know, how would you rate this one to 10? How do you feel? So we do both. So we try to do the, the we do the qualitative research in these typical, you know, rooms with one-sided mirrors where we interview people and we let them test things and see how they actually re- react. So we, we, we try to get one stream of high fidelity, low volume data, and then another stream of quantitative data. And we usually start with a qualitative to try to understand what users feel and, and, and so forth. And I think there's a future where the qualitative research could be much more uh, scientific, where you could actually understand if, you know, your ability to make someone feel happier, for example. So, I mean, we literally have playlists called Happy Mood Booster and it's very likely that people turn them on because that's how they want to feel. But we have no good way of measuring if they actually feel happier. But we're assuming that they wouldn't keep playing if they weren't. But it's very crude. It, so, yeah, well, that's yeah. This this um, a lot of this in in um, I think in artificial intelligence and maybe science in general is trying to figure out how reliable we are on how biased we are, you know, how honest we really are to ourselves. So if you're asking somebody if they like something or feel happy, do, do they maybe go to the linguistic choice that is the closest to what they, what, to what they mean, but it may not be anywhere near that. So doing the, you know, the imaging and trying to triangulate this in some way as an input, it can really tell us a lot about human how humans express exactly you know, what's really going on. That seems like there could be some incredible research done it on this. It goes into this this territory of you know neural correlates and like it, can you actually is there actually a pattern which is now you're happy or not? And I, my view, as far as I can tell, is people still don't know if that's actually just a pattern that that is uh, noisy. So it's hard to spot now, but with good machine learning, you could you could recognize that pattern, which is sort of I, I think this is the bet that you know, Neuralink and others are doing that you could discern these patterns and, and and sort of mental states using machine learning. If if you had, they're betting on that you need invasive surgery for this. Um, others are betting that you don't, uh, but I think no one yet knows if you can actually see it in the correlates, so to speak, in the neural correlates, or if it's actually happening in an abstract space, one level up, if you understand what I mean. So yes. you, you, it would look mostly like, it would be like measuring, measuring the, you put a lot of electrodes into the motherboard of a computer and you're like, what, what are they doing? You're never going to understand that they're playing Minecraft because you're like too many levels down. <laughs> like all the interesting abstract stuff happens many levels up. And so it may, it may be the case that we can never understand as well by just looking at the neurons firing. Or maybe we can discern patterns, but I haven't seen anyone conclusively say if we can yet. I think people are guessing. I don't know what your view is. Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably early. And I also think that the exploration, if we're aware of it, changes the outcome, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, th- th- there's so much going on subconsciously. And if you, you know that this is what hap- happens, let's say something does make you how you would qualify as sad. Um, do you want to have that experience again? It may turn you away from the music, which then makes that music go into the, you know, become less popular or less recommended to you. 
Um, and this, this could happen with a lot of things. It's not even a value judgment of whether it's good or bad, but, you know, awareness, more awareness of what, what is actually going on is interesting in understanding the human brain, but it may change the human brain at the same time. But, but I do think, and I know people are looking at this, um, by no means an expert, but I do think music is one of the better tools to try to figure this out because it can so dependently create the same mental state, right? Whereas if you tell a story to someone and then you try to image it, maybe they interpret that story differently because of biases and so forth. But music has this general ability to incur the same state in many people who even don't speak the same language. So it seems like one of the better tools for trying to understand the brain, actually, if you want to image it. Yeah, I would assume that most people who go deliberately to a concert, or especially if something that is maybe, I wouldn't say more difficult, I don't like to say this, but if you're going to some type of, um, you know, avant-garde jazz, you've already, it's a type of music you already like, and it becomes a shared experience of going to see that. And it'll probably be a similar thing next time you see that band. And there might be this, this thing that happens that, that you still have this sort of group group experience or this understanding that they will come back. But I'm also interested in sort of reconsolidation of memories. Uh, You're you're familiar with this concept. I take it Uh, that, you know, you have a chance to reinforce over and over again and never go back to your first experience with it. Uh, So I, 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 I find that I almost want to control that in order to maintain, you know, a certain connection to that music that meant something to me at the time. But now that it's so available, do I only remember the last time I listened to it? That would say that's the way that, we, you know, neural, you know, the brain works as far as reconsolidation. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's fascinating. And I think people have had the instinct all the time when they say, like, maybe you shouldn't dig into that too much. Maybe you'll quote-unquote, destroy the memory. Maybe you should let it be because it was beautiful. I think people have had that instinct. And then later on, science has proved that, you know, most uh, trauma treatment is actually to try to bring up a memory because once it's brought up, you can reshape it. And then you can remove from... Exactly, it's not reliable. So it turns out science confirms this, that you should be careful with your memories, especially your good ones, because maybe... If you bring them up too often, you could taint it or make it less good than 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 it was. So I think it's a it's a it's a fascinating concept. And if you if you think about it evolutionarily, it, it obviously makes a lot of sense that the the point of memory is not to uh, to memorize; it's to generalize and as quickly as possible learn the general lesson. I find that as a tangent really really interesting. That you know we we tend to be impressed by people that remember details very well. Whereas evolutionarily, it's the people that generalize and forget the fastest that are the most effective at learning the lesson. Maybe this is the reason why there's a stereotype of, you know, very smart professors, you know, being poor at remembering things because they're just better at generalizing than the rest of us. They throw away the details. But I find that a fascinating concept. It's a little bit, maybe a little bit sad because we all love our memories. And to find out that they're so unreliable was was yeah, like a, it, when, when I realized that it was it was definitely a thing for me. But then you realize that that makes a ton of sense. 
Yeah, it was a thing for me too. It was, it was, it seemed very disturbing and now isn't at all for this same reason. It was, it's the memory. It's, it's the, it's the major general I, thing that happened that matters. Uh, exactly. You know, it, then we can take in more, you know, I, I, then I have many memories that I've generalized and they, and then can bridge them also, you know, how does that become me? You exactly. know, and then, and then I guess that ends up then affecting how we create artificial intelligence is that it's not about always the details, but about taking it, consolidating it, then reconsolidating it and generalizing it. Exactly. And, I, and it may be the reason, and I have no idea, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, really, really not an expert on this at all, other than neuroscience or the AI side, but it, it may be the reason why um, there is so much compute involved in creating good AI and there maybe need not be so much because we're not, you know, we're not sort of constantly compiling and generalizing along the way. We're tr trying to make sure the computer gets it all right. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's possible. I'm not, I'm not expert enough to have a strong opinion on it, but, uh, but I would imagine so. I mean, the, really when, when starting to dig into machine learning and maybe especially deep learning in a bigger way. I think, I think it's like the best framework that I've found for, for understanding what well, many things, life in general, but for obvious reasons, maybe ourselves, because to some extent, even though it's far from analogous, uh, we, we are such creatures as ourselves, as far as we can, we can understand. And, and it's so clear that you can get a neural network to, to, to memorize if you want to, but that's actually failure. What we want to do is to get it to generalize. And the more data we show it, the better it generalizes, right? And, and this whole notion of the, the best, you know, the most innovations have come when we actually bottleneck a system somewhere and we force it to find much more sparse abstractions. And then you see, like, that's, that's what we do. So maybe this thing of being forgetful, maybe you're actually just better at, at generalizing and, and you get some other benefits for this. Uh, or, or maybe not. Maybe you're just forgetful. Who knows? But I, I find it like a really interesting framework to to think about the world. And I think the same when you know when you look at generative networks. And I think the first time I I spent a lot of time with uh, like recurrent neural networks, and you have this notion of temperature, where where you you can do like an you can do like an argmax and get like this just most statistically likely. Or you can add a little bit of temperature and it starts looking like creativity, right? It's statistical creativity. It's close to the likely thing, but it goes a bit further. And then if you add the if you increase the temperature too much, the, the RNN starts looking like it's insane. And then you have this view, like maybe that's how humans work. Maybe some humans have a slightly higher temperature. They're very creative. But as soon as they go too far, we call them crazy. And that's why people say that the, the line between you know, crazy and genius is, is so fine. So I just find it a really useful framework to think about the world. Yeah. Who is, how did you step into this? Was there some, was there either a researcher, a, uh, a book that got, that really inspired you to realize that you could learn something about humanity and also, you know, advance technologically? I think I got, Maybe it was an age thing. I got more and more interested in philosophy and the big questions. I started listening to a lot of philosophy 
philosophy of mind and 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 meaning and so forth. But then uh, I was lucky enough that my work required that I start understanding more and more about machine learning as well. And so while I had done a little bit of it in in university, but, but that was back in in like '97. So so you know neural networks wasn't very the big thing right back then. Uh, so I hadn't spent a lot of time with it. I basically had to go back to school and started coding again and took all the usual classes from Andrew Ng to Andre Karpatis, um Stanford courses when he was still there before he went to Tesla and uh, just spent a lot of time with it technically at the same time as I was interested in, in uh, philosophy. So I think those two things just converged. And it was great to be able to like, see the math at the same time. Because I mean, I like understanding things. Even if I, you know, I, I never write any code at Spotify, no one would let me. But <laughs> I, I, I want to understand how things work at detail. Because otherwise, I don't think you can make good decisions around. So do you read code at work? I mean, do you do, you do code reviews or anything? And take no, in? I don't really do code reviews. Very, very seldomly. I'm not good enough at coding anymore. And, and I, I never was a very good coder. Yeah, I, I, are you the type of person that takes that? I mean, I, you know, I, I I don't think that I'm particularly good at anything. But so I'm saying this, but are I I tend to have books by my bed or on my you know audio playlist or whatever it might be, or maybe it's podcast that are completely unrelated to each other and mix them up during the day, not even deliberately, but realizing that. Uh, I want to try these different things, and I think it influences the way that I, I think. Are you the type of person who does that? Yeah, I, I have the two tendencies. I mean, some people, they tend to go very broad and quite shallow, and I think that's a great strategy, actually. Maybe that's the best strategy if you want to create some sort of value because you can see the cross-pollination from different fields, and there are other people that go deeper in a field. Then there are some individuals, of which I am definitely not one, who can sort of do both, <laughs> like deep in multiple fields. I'm unfortunately not that. I I like to go deeper on things. Uh, so there are a few areas where I, I like to go deeper, at least on, on theory, until I understand the theory quite well. And so um, there, there's, that's probably, that's probably how I, I work. And um then I have like a, a more more shallow understanding of of um, other fields, but I do like to, I don't have as much time as I want to to go deep on things, but that's that I think is my my um, natural instinct. <laughs> I think I would have probably been in academia and doing research if I hadn't been sort of happening into into uh, entrepreneurism and so forth, which was an accident. I basically started a company because I couldn't get a job. It wasn't because I was dreaming of becoming an entrepreneur or anything like that. So that's why that's why you're not an academic to this day? I think so. I mean, if you look at the rest of my family, they tend to go towards the academic track. They tend to like to nerd down about things. So I think that's probably my natural natural bias. So is there an area that you would like to get, you know, you mentioned time constraints that I think we all feel. And is there, is there an area that you if you had more time that you haven't, that you don't have a deep understanding of now that you'd like to dig into more? Yeah, it's probably computational biology because I find it so related to, to what I know, you know, computation, machine learning, programming, and so forth. I find it a really interesting concept to just think of it as 
as computation. I do think my personal completely uh, non-corroborated view is that the, the universe is computational. That's the theory I like. And because no one knows what is true in this field, you can actually pick your favorite theory. Uh, so I find that field fascinating, but I don't know nearly enough to to be very effective in it or, or really even read read papers that effectively. So that's an area I would like to learn much more. I found it super fascinating. Yeah, me too. So by choosing a certain way that, you know, a generalized way that you see the the universe, this computational universe, that at least gives you a framework to how you would start and which areas you could dig deeper in rather than having a shallow view of every different possibilities of the way the universe works. Is that, am I getting that right a bit? Yeah, I, I think so. My, I mean, my hope would be that you go deep on something, whether it's biology or machine learning or coding, and then you learn these, um, you, you learn these abstractions from there. And then hopefully the hope would be that they actually apply to the other, the other areas as well, once you dig down there. So, so you get some synergies, right? That's, that's what I liked about machine learning. It seems applicable as a principle or a way of thinking around a, a lot of things, right? Um, not just intelligence, but life in general. It's, it's like a good framework to think about. And so I, you know, I'd like to learn as many good frameworks as possible. I do like uh, Charlie Munger, who, you know, is, is sort of the master of frameworks. And he has this idea that if you have an idea, you should run it through at least, I don't know if it's three to five different frameworks. And if they come out the same, it's it's probably a good idea, right? But but uh, if they but they they rarely do because any model by definition is a is not true. That then it will be called reality. It's a model because it's not true. The simplification of, of reality, where you uh, collapse a bunch of dimensions into one to make it manageable, and so the benefit is now it's manageable and you can use it to predict the future. But the question is, did you collapse the too many dimensions? So if you run three models on the same thing, you're increasing chances that what you're seeing is actually true. It's not just that you happen to collapse the wrong dimensions in your one model. And I've definitely felt that in my life, this like Dunning-Kruger effect. You know, you, you grow up and you're like, I got to figure it out. Like, I know how this works. And then something happens and you're like, no, I had no idea how it actually worked. And then you, you, you add another model and you're like, no, I think I know how this actually works. Something happens, you realize that you had overfitted for like two years of experience, like you just hadn't seen more data yet and everything, you know, falls apart. And then you add more and more models. And, and at, this, at some point at my age, you start realizing that you probably actually don't know very much, but at least you understand that you don't know so much. Yeah, and I, and I maybe you have like four or five models of the world. So you get a little bit, a little bit better, but you stop, being, you stop thinking that the world is, uh, is, is uh, simple. That, yeah, that's really interesting. There's a, there there are certainly a lot of mathematical correlates to that. You know, we we add infinities, for instance, on on in in things that you know it's a little bit I would say cheating, but that's all we can all, all we can do. But then you take another approach and you don't use calculus, you use linear algebra, and you see if you get the same results. You know, you and I mean this is what was sort of beautiful about quantum mechanics. You have Schrodinger's wave function, and then you have Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, completely different mathematics that arrive at the same kind of exactly. So we, we kind of think, well, mathematically, quantum mechanics makes sense. And then you have experiments that show that, <laughs> you know, that, exactly. that 
you know, and that I guess is similar to human experience and to different models that we apply to how we view things. Yeah. Uh, that is really interesting. I mean, it, it, it makes me wonder, and I, I keep going back to music or even just arts and creativity in general. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm this, I'm, you know, I, I, I value science and technology enormously and I've spent a lot of my life in it, but I kind I have this desire to hold some creative expression as being very human. Uh, but, but if we look at a, you know, taking a alternative model and creating artificial, or I'd say AI music or painting, what does that do for us? What, what is your feeling on this? What if, what if, and, and this isn't, I'm truly not Spotify specific. Is it, what if you were able to get it right and or think you get it right for either the qualitative or the quantitative experience? Is that, then we've solved this? Is that tell us something about ourselves? The universe, is it even something we should be exploring? You mean in, in terms of like sort of artificially created music? Yeah, AI music. AI music. Yeah, AI created music, AI created paintings, whatever I mean, it might be. There is lots of research in that field. Um, and Spotify acquired years ago a company that was looking at um, artificially created scoring, basically looking at um, you know, sheet music. And you know it was like MDPs and stuff back then, seeing if you could generate um, scores, you know, scored music. And so, so there are many layers to it. You could, I mean, there is um, using AI to help um, uh, mixing, help production. Then there's also use, could, could AI produce original scoring? And I mean, the, the evidence says that, yes, if you run a sort of evolutionary process with a feedback loop, and lots of training data, you're going to be able to generate scores that are pleasing to the human ear. I think that's going to happen. And, and I think it is happening. I mean, there are companies that create sort of music for for um, background situations, um, for advertising, for example. There are actually companies, because of rights issues, right? They create large volumes of artificial music to put behind your ads that is deliberately supposed to be not, not take over because you want to listen to the ad message. You don't want to listen to, to the music. You want to pay attention to the ad message. So, so there is already music that is being AI generated. However, not, there's no music that has been AI generated, as far as I know, that is like topping the charts. And so, I think the other question—the the question is not could could AI produce um, music that is aesthetically pleasing. That seems to be a question of time and and resources. And uh, I think the question is more: What is it that we humans? enjoy about it how much is it the fact that it's that it is um part of human experience that it, that it yeah. represents something right exactly. so i don't know even if there was good music if it would be the same as uh, as an artist i mean you, you have these japanese uh, artificial artists of course that have concerts uh, actually in that case the music is created by humans but the artist is virtual it doesn't really exist so you you could you could plug together evidence that it should be able to happen, artificial artists that are very popular. But um, that's not what, what we invest in, in in Spotify. What we invest in with these AI things is, um, we, we talked about the DAW, the Digital Audio Workstation. Um, I think the analogy there to 
a software developer, software developer writes code, they have access to AI to do better products. I think musicians should have access to AI to help uh, automatically mix their music, to help them with suggestions for different instruments. So that's the approach we're taking. AI as augmentation to human creativity, which I think is, has always happened. Technology has always enhanced human creativity. So, so I don't know if it would ever come to the point that it would be totally machine. Yeah, I, I didn't want to suggest that Spotify was doing that. I certainly see it as being a compilation of human creations. Um, I do, I do find it interesting that when, when there is, uh, when when humans know that they are seeing something that is artificial, or you know, or that is not created by another human, it, that knowledge of it alone exactly changes how you experience it. That's my hunch. It's more than just uh, audio waves. It's actually the connection to to the thing itself. Yeah, there was there was another human that achieved it. It's a, you know it's it's a bit like that with sports. For instance, you know I go to basketball games. I like basketball, and you know there's something kind of superhuman about what a good basketball player does. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily go and see a machine do it, except for to recognize that a human created a machine capable of doing it. <laughs> and so it still goes back to because you know we, I, I think we want to have this ability to empathize or re- relate or even to exalt somebody else's ability you you could think of something like um i mean in some areas machines have been beaten humans so playing chess or go right and so or or even uh, starcraft or something like that so it is interesting to the chess playing go playing and starcraft community to look at these things fighting each other because they can learn moves but it hasn't as far as i know become a big youtube thing to just watch these infinite matches between these things, right? <laughs> because then yeah. it's, there's no human anymore, so it, it becomes less interesting. Like these computers are playing StarCraft games against each other virtually, you know, all, all the time in in training. But that doesn't. I don't know if that's going to become big entertainment because you know there is no human there. It's like an NBA game, and you know it never actually happened. It's just rendering. Like how interesting is it then? Yeah, I, oh, I agree, and I I find I mean the the sort of amazing thing, and if you if the 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 final uh, uh, AlphaGo of Lisa Dell and 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 uh, this you know an, an AlphaGo that this enormous emotional response to a human not being able to do it by by Sadal and also just by you know the millions of people who consider the art of the game of it. And then the surprise that even though we know that a human is not better than a machine, more people are playing the game of Go. I find, I find that fascinating. I'm not even sure I understand it, but I find it amazing uh, that we've discovered something about uh, humanity wanting to not necessarily even compete with the AI anymore. I think we've kind of given up this we realize that computers are better at this yeah i guess we'll see this later on if you're talking about autonomous vehicles and whether people still want to drive (laughs) you know we'll see a lot i think we'll see this in most areas of our lives of how much we grasp onto the humanity yeah exactly And, and like you said people actually didn't stop playing go or chess it's actually bigger than ever which i think is inspiring even though a, a machine actually beat humans. And I, I think the driving is an interesting thing. I mean, many people say it will be like having 
having a car would be like having a horse and some some sort of luxury that you never do every now and then. But but I don't know. Maybe cars is different because it's mostly a utility. Whereas yeah. music I mean, and gaming I, I is not a utility. I, I don't I don't drive at least very much, so it wouldn't matter to me. But I know people that love to drive fast or do you know there it does become a a sport rather than a, a necessity maybe. And in our lives, I guess you could think of as kind of sporting those things that give us either some type of uh, dopamine or whatever that might be, that the neurotransmitter that we're seeking that that thing. And I, yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. Um, What, you know, we talked a bit about what you're, uh, you know, interested in philosophically and even technologically uh what what are you seeing as something that that you know would interest a lot of people from your background that we should all be taking a look at you mean from from my um from my personal background or something that i'm interested in that i think people something more you're people interested think- in because you know your background affects that no matter whether you think so or not. You wouldn't be interested in it if something in your life hadn't shaped you in that way to be interested in it. If you agree with that. I don't yeah, even know if that's absolutely. true. Absolutely. No, I do think that the most, it's, it's certainly not a novel question and, and people have thought about this all the time. Uh, but I still think a surprisingly few, um, a surprisingly small amount of people ever get the the, the chance or the opportunity or the luxury to think about these more existential questions of, of why do you exist? Why does it feel like something to exist? And, and so forth. And of course, these has been, have been discussed for hundreds of, or even thousands of years. But with, we are getting, well, who knows if we're getting closer, actually. You don't know that until you've arrived. Maybe we're super far away. But it is, does certainly seem like an interesting time to ask these questions because you have new tools. You have the tools of, of computer science, brain imaging, and so forth. So while this was only the domain of philosophers until recently, I think I have a hunch that these questions are going to, to, be, um, to reemerge. And I think they should capture the imagination of more than a small amount of people. I mean, these are fantastic questions. You know, many people go through their entire life without thinking about why they're actually there or what the point is. All you worry about is your offspring. And then you don't end up thinking like, well, what they're going to worry about is just their offspring. And then their offspring is like, what's the, what's the point of it? Like, what is it that we're all supposed to worry about? And what is the point of being here? So I, I think I've started to see um, a general rise in these questions around um, existence and consciousness slowly uh, i don't know maybe it's through people like you know sam harris and, and joshua bach and others who are slowly spreading this from like super um, academic circles into into the more mainstream but that is something i find really interesting and inspiring and i think a lot of people could really use that i think other things like religion are are um, i mean religion is still very strong um that is one way to sort of not have to deal with this or hang it up on something else. 
but I find these questions so much more inspiring um, as, as a way of being amazed at, at life. You know, when, when, you, when I feel low or depressed, uh, I, I, I think about this quote from, I actually don't remember who said it. I'm sure one of the listeners will remember it, but it's certainly not me. But you think of life as this uh, ride that you happen to get a ticket to, and you think of all the DNA uh, combinations that never happened, how many people were in line for this ride that never made it, right? And you actually made it. And not only did you make it, but you made it now, not like a few thousand years ago. You know, I made it in Sweden, like a pretty equal society where I had free education. You get this view that it's actually amazing that you're here at all and get to take this crazy ride. And and that's not to diminish that, you know, lots of people are in, in terrible situations, obviously. But that... That way of, of thinking about it for me is is very positive. It gets me it gets me um, amazed at being alive at all and thinking that you know whatever this thing is, it's at least very exciting and that helps you. At least it helps me in in adversity uh, to to think about it that way. And I when I talk to people about this, you know, the first time you you talk to people about this concept of why it feels like something to exist, philosophical zombies, these things, people's minds just blow up. And for a while, they're like, that's that's amazing. Like, I never thought about this, right? And it feels like so sad that that um, many people don't get to think about this. So that's the area that I would like to see spread. I actually think, you know, philosophy should come back, but aided by, for example, computer science as a framework or biology as a framework or, or other frameworks. Yeah, it's it's interesting to say what people think when you say that and what their surprise might be. I first thing that comes to my mind is how different things would be if you had if you didn't have the bookend of death. How would we what questions would we ask if we didn't consider our own mortality and how, you know, how would we progress? I mean, it, it, and and I, and I think that's I mean that's one of those questions where where everyone thinks that death is, or not everyone, but most people think that death is just something, uh, just like a downside that happened to happen. But the que- the question is like, is it is it necessary? Like if, if, in an evolutionary process, you clearly see that it's necessary for us to get to where we are. If if only if the first organism survived forever and didn't procreate, like it, it wouldn't have worked. So you, you see, the entire system is actually predicated on on this notion, and so. Um, if you can get to this feeling that you are part of something uh, bigger, the the point is not you. The point is society, or or maybe intelligence, or maybe beauty, whatever whatever you choose. But you're a part of building this this uh, thing, and maybe that thing transcends us. Maybe we're a substrate. Maybe it becomes artificial and silicon or something. Who who knows? But it's much more exciting. To, to feel that you're part of something that is so, part of some process and part of something that is being uh, built. And and I, I think it's, uh, for me, it's a very reassuring way to think about the world. Do, what do you think about um, brain emulation, you know, uploads of, the, of your brain? I was very inspired uh, by it uh, when I first read The Great Kurzweil and so forth and exponential thinking like many years ago it was one of those things that opened my eyes to like more interesting questions than that just what you're gonna 
eat and do and your your personal life and your careers and, and those things. Um, specifically on that question, um, I don't know. I think the big question is 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 the is the brain actually much more complicated than we think, and we're so far off, or is it actually the the opposite that if we found the right algorithms that there is a there is a so so one way to think about the brain is we have these physical neural networks they learn some embeddings uh, patterns and uh, symmetries and 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 this eventually words and if you think of words as commands commands in a programming language almost like Dan Dennett speaks of it so you have words that are commands. You put together words into sentences. Sentences are small programs. Now you can execute. So you learn this runtime when you're a kid. You can start executing some code, and then maybe eventually you actually instantiate an object that is yourself, and that's why you become uh, conscious. Joshua Bach talks about some people instantiating an object called God that could potentially sandbox you. Uh, I, you know, I think I think that uh, view is very exciting. But if you think of it as most of the stuff is probably not happening in the physical layer, there's some sort of instantiated um, runtime on top of this. So the question is, that runtime, maybe it's actually much simpler than the underlying substrate. If you, if you look at a, it's back to this analogy of looking at a modern computer with billions of transistors. If you would try to understand the, the logic of a program that draws some polygons, from looking at all the electrical signals, it would look impossible. It would, you would have this notion, of, we, we need all the atoms in the universe, this isn't going to work. But if someone told you the mathematical formula for drawing that polygon, like the logic up there wasn't that complicated. So I have this hope that in this more abstract space, it's actually less complicated, what we are, than it looks like on the surface. But, but this is total amateur theory, I have no clue, but that's my hope. That means that it would be possible to some extent because if you could reach that abstraction layer, you could implement this with, with other logic. You don't necessarily need everything below. Yeah, we, we always seem to do better. And there, there's a hope that the universe continues to work the way that physics has in the past, where getting to some sort of elegance and simplification is actually the way that we understand things. And we've, we've, we've sort of put the brain aside and said, this is the most complex thing in the universe and there are petabytes of data. There's this, you know, trillions of more, more synapses than everything. And, and, and I, I always push back against that for no reason at all and for no understanding that I have at all, other than if we do that, we've given up um, our ability to understand ourselves and understand the universe. Uh, I, I, I agree with that. I push back for yeah. the same reason without having yeah. any data to back it up. <laughs> yeah. but, but the good thing about this is because no one knows yet, you're allowed to like have hopes or yeah. choose, choose your preference, um, you know, because actually no one knows. And so that's my, my hope and preference that, you know, there's a, there's a logical layer, one level up. There is this fantastic paper from way back called, uh, what is it? how would a biologist fix a transistor radio, I think, where they kind of go through how, how you know, a biologist would try to understand what was broken with transistor radio by looking at the, at the, the very low level, right? So, so th this is my hope, that we're looking at the wrong level and it looks infinitely complex and out of reach forever. 
but it may not be. It may be simpler on a more abstract level. Yeah, I, no, it's my, it's mine as well, and I love to contrast the way I and I feel about music with the way that I feel about our understanding of the universe. There's part of me that just wants to feel and not understand this thing that brings, you know, the, the emotions of music. But at the same time, there is a visceral excitement and response to understanding something scientifically and the way the universe works. So these things may not be the opposite, as I've thought before. Uh, that, I, I, there, it may be wonderful, and it is wonderful, that I get to talk to you about something technological and emotional associated with Spotify and lead that to uh, trying to find elegance in ourselves the way we're starting to at different places of the universe. That's really amazing. I had no idea I would go there in this conversation. What is, what is your view on the, on the universe? What is your favorite theory, theory or view on how it works? So, yeah, the, I think that this conversation has led me in a, a different way to answer that. Um, my intuition um, is that there, you know, that there is not a multiverse that um, science is what is observable within our own universe. This is, however, that's not nearly the most exciting way to view it. (laughs) So if it's not the most exciting way to view it, why spend a lifetime not exploring the more interesting approaches to physics and the way the universe might work? Um, To explore the computational universe, I do I loved, I, I had a chance to interview Stephen Wolf from, on this podcast, and I'm extremely attracted to his view of, of, of the universe. It's f- both fun to play with and at the same time not, not stepping as far into, uh, you know, just my imagination as, as other things would. Um, so, you know, I'm in the moment of, of, of exploring, even though I had done it years and years ago, explored, uh, Wolfram's work. I'm going through it again as he has now formulated more things about physics than he had before. So, but, you know, I will change. And I think that, you know, the answer to the question will be different next year. You know, and I guess that's okay. Are you a believer in the, in the, that, in the automaton world now that well, it's, there, it's all no- computational? You know, there's nothing about being a believer in one thing or the other. I'm, I'm inherently not, you know, I'm You're excited I, about I, them all. I'm, you know, I'm, agno- I'm agnostic. I just, you know, there's, there's time to explore different things. I, and, uh, you know, it's part of why I get to talk to people here. This, this is one of the things I, I wish would reach more people. Once you play around with something like that, uh, Stephen Wolfram's work, or, or, or earlier with, with the you know, Game of Life or something, the first time you see this little glider across the screen or something and you try to imagine what the world would look like from that glider's perspective you know this is all computational deterministic but for that glider you know some things will approach it it will it will bounce off systematically they will look that there's there are deterministic physical rules in their universe some things will seem probabilistic they happen every now and then so you you get this moment where like well you know this whole thing about free will does it exist or not for that glider it would look like 
it was actually the agent here and it actually affected the universe, even though it's all computational. Like, I wish those things could be popularized because they're not that, that they are more inaccessible, I think, than they need to be hidden behind math and all these things. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think it's an incredibly exciting concept to people. And, and if, you, if you go through it on any level, it, it starts to change the way that you view things. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. I don't, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if it would be considered accessible or not. Um, and that, that's something I always get confused about because I think that I think more is accessible to most people than we think. We think there is a certain expertise required. Maybe people can't dig as deeply as you do, as you said, you go so deep into a topic. I often don't, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, maybe that means that I will never understand anything. But at the same time, it makes life incredibly rich to get these little tidbits of, uh, you know, of, of beauty that was discovered by others or expressed by others. Um, you know, the question is why, what, the, what the point of life is, right? Maybe the point right. of life is to be excited about the yeah. beauty of the right things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I mean, when I, you know, this isn't uh, clearly. I'm not very good at this doing podcasts. It's not my, it's not my day job. I think you're but doing it, great. Sucks. Oh, thanks. But it affects my whole day. Things will be different today because of the conversation I had with you. I will view things in a way that I never thought I would. That's a pretty special way to to get to get to get to live. So I have a question for for you because I know you're a creator of music. And you you play jazz, which is a is a very special form of music. Um, how do you think about? Uh, we talked a lot about uh, consumption of music and how someone listening feels. I my I have this hunch. I'm not a very great musician at all. I try to play the piano, but that's a very different experience when you're actually creating it in real time. If you talk about feedback loops. And if you start doing improv like you do, you're literally feedbacking on yourself in real time. How do, have you thought about it from a creator point of view to really literally use music yourself, which very few people get to do because it, it really requires a lot of skill and years of practice to get to that. But it seems to be an amazing experience once you're there. I'm not there, by the way, <laughs> at uh, all. It's the most... It's 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 really interesting to play completely improvised music where there where the rules are only the constraints of in the case of piano those keys those eighty eight keys that's it um, and you're in a room maybe playing with other musicians and the ideas are fresh to what you're doing at that time and you're you're continually actually trying to push away so we close our eyes when we play. Uh, free jazz. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but and there, there's possibly some neuroscience going on here that if your eyes are closed, you start to recruit a bit from the visual cortex. The eye. maybe, maybe or not, that's true. And how long that takes is 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 questionable. There have been some fMRIs about it done on it, but you're really trying to push away that compositional experience or the idea to try to do anything else, and that that's exploratory and beautiful in a way that you're discovering that something can happen that you could never have done any prediction for. And that may then relate to how we consume as well, uh, that you want to do, you want to rid yourself of any notions in order to discover something deeper and experience something different than you have before. 
uh, it's an incredibly special experience to me. Well, at the same time, too many music is. What's your what's your feeling when when doing that? I mean, some people talk about state of trance, or like yeah. how how does it feel for you to do that? It's it's a yeah. It can, it can be a, a, a state of trance where you don't and a disembodiment in the sense that you can't tell why your hands are doing what they do and you stop thinking about it. But it's also a connection. It shouldn't be possible that if you're playing with another musician that you that just the speed of sound and you're playing as fast as you are and you're doing something that has any coherence and interesting reaction and picking up things. It, we don't know why it's possible. So there's a, there is absolutely a sense of there's still more to discover in the same way as we talk about science is this beautiful thing that once you discover one thing, you have a lifetime to discover more. This is how it feels even in the moment that, that you are, that, that you're connecting in ways. And even if you're playing alone, you're connecting with your environment in different ways. I mean, I'm, I've never experienced it because I'm not skilled enough at it, but, but that's, that's what I'm fascinated by, this notion that if music is as like a lower, le- lower level language, machine code, maybe it's possible to synchronize a few people on that level, whereas with language, the interpreter is too slow. You can't really synchronize on that level where you're you know almost on the motor level where it's you're almost unconscious and it is to, to some extent if you squint a little bit like being one one joint thing when you're yeah. when you're playing which looks it's pretty uh, close. fascinating it, re- it really is pretty close it's actually what i thought of when you were talking about um Doing the you know the quantitative and the and the qualitative or object, these objective experiences of how pe- what people say about the music they listen to versus how, what the, what's going on in that moment. And I think as a listener, you can have this um, this almost you know disembodiment, and you're taken either back or forward, and you know maybe you're like you said, there's just this thing of now people listening, you know, sleep listening, or you know they're the description of what happened may not be the way that it actually was in that moment. It becomes compositional. You're composing words to explain it. And that's different than the creation of it. And that's one thing that is interests me about how choices are made. Um, I mean, one thing I would love to do with music, as I said, I think, I think music should be at the very beginning of its, of its journey. Uh, just, just if you look at it technically, it's, it's the least evolved format, even though it's older than than most of the other formats. Um, but w- what many other formats have done is that they're much more interactive. And uh, one thing that I think is a shame is that the bar to get to something like that experience of, of creation is so high. It's 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 uh, years of motor training and. and and so by forth, the way, so. don't you know? I, I don't don't get intimidated by that. You're going to discover something amazing if you play in this way. It, it, you know, it, you don't you know you don't have to be Thelonious Monk to play great. great <laughs> interests you. But I wonder. I, I would love if if technology has always like lowered the barrier to be able to create something. And so I wonder if it's possible using technology to get more people to get some of that experience, to be able to create or interact or react. It's such a one-way consumption experience today, whereas it feels like, is there somewhere for some way for more people to be participatory in the, in the experience? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to explore that. It seems there, there's a little bit of it that I didn't have any idea of it. You know, I have a, a 15-year-old daughter 
And, uh, you know, during this time when she's spending a lot of time alone because it's, it's, you know, we're in this global pandemic and, you know, there were a lot of, I mean, it's sad as a teenager not to be interacting in any way, um, but using forms like TikTok and other things where people are actually creating these harmonies and playing with each other over long distances. And, and it's, I mean, I, I, she shows, she shows me things. I don't have this type of platform. It's, you know, I'm an old man who doesn't do this type of thing. However, I, I'm sometimes amazed by what is being created. And then if I think about it in the next step, what, what makes you not, you know, subconscious if you're not well-trained or you're not a musician, there are things that I've always looked down on that are actually, I think, good, like auto-tune. You know, what if you weren't self-conscious about the way you sang because you, you didn't have this, you know, amazing sense of pitch? but you were incredibly expressive about how you sing. That's actually, you know, you, you know, and if you use that technology and, and play with different types of technologies, it may be better than anything else out there. And, and, you know, how does that evolve? Uh, I, I think that's my, that's my hope as well. I mean, I think you can look at simple, simple things. Well, they weren't that simple at the time, but you, you look at things like uh, uh, SingStar and, uh, you know, um, what's it called? Uh, where you play drums and guitar. Um, you know, with, with a PlayStation. And you can see the joy in people's eyes where they are not at the level that they could have good enough pitch or they, they could play like a, a six-string instrument. But oh, like Guitar like, Hero or whatever. A guitar, yeah, Guitar Hero is what I was thinking about, yeah. harmonics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually spoken to one of the MIT professors who was part of, of uh, founding harmonics. And, and uh, uh, he, uh, you know, the the... the Vision was to bring this joy of creation to more people, and I, I really think they they succeeded. And I think that you know there there could be and there should be and there likely will be much more in that area where I think some people will think of it as cheating because like it, it's not a real guitar, you know, auto tune, it's not real pitch. But I think that's a mirage. I think it's it's something deeper. And I think if you if you build better tools, you get to this deeper um, the, the feeling that you have. When you create music with others, I, I think you can do that without necessarily having to learn these these quite uh, hard to use tools. If you, if you yeah, I, I think that's right. There is a certain competitive aspect to that, though, that might be different. Although, you know, there's also if you look at that, there's a certain competitive aspect to jazz in some ways, too. But that's I you know, that there's something that I wonder if it can serve as a kind of gateway truck to playing other types of music as well. If you're thinking about a guitar hero type thing. I mean, this is something I did as a kid that I've just started doing again and forgot that I did. And the millions of people do is you put on like I, I'm not a good guitar player at all. In fact, I'm terrible, but I've played a little bit since I was young. And I got out uh, my electric guitar in over the last couple months and play along with you know, with recordings, you know, and you may play differently and maybe improvise around it. Maybe I only play one string at a time, but it's kind of a guitar hero experience, but it's an actual instrument. And then I could play a little bit alone. Is, could it, you know, it's interesting. And it serves like kind of the gateway drug to doing that and then playing with others. This could all happen. Um, And there's these, and these technology environments where, where you can, you know, you team up with others is, is I think fascinating. Yeah. Um, some really beautiful stuff. That's something I would definitely like to see happen. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I hadn't even thought of it this way until this conversation. It's wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm going to take up all your day. Uh, but it's it's been my pleasure. Day. Thank you so much, Gustav. It's fantastic. Very, I love the conversation. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks.